0: Each year we have this sermon series where we try to just listen to you, listen to our friends, listen to the community, and um, see what questions people are asking, what questions we are asking, that we can try to provide a helpful, compassionate, biblical, truthful answer to. And it, today if you were to ask people what, what is the most difficult question facing the church, and facing Christians, and facing non-Christians, and people want to know the answer to this question. Well, many people, as per the response, when I asked for a response a few months ago, and just in conversations with you, many people would say that the question that we first want to ask is this, what would Jesus say to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community? And if you've come today for the first time, we don't talk about this issue every Sunday. It's okay. Um, take a deep breath. If, if you've come today expecting a certain answer, I just want to ask you, take a deep breath too. Because what we're going to read from Scripture may not identify clearly with the answer that you already have in your mind. If you come uh, with expectations of... I just want to ask you to listen. Not just listen to me, but we believe when we open up God's Word. That he speaks to us. And I believe that what we're going to share for the next uh, 30 or so minutes is really important. I believe it's going to come from scripture. And I believe there is something that's going to be said to every person here today, regardless of your background. When it comes to this question... Different ones of you, uh, different people would say the primary issue, the primary issue is a moral issue. Others would say, no, it's a, it's a family values issue. Some would say it's a civil rights issue. Others, it's a target bathroom issue. Can you believe our world is arguing about target bathrooms? Some would say it's a theological issue. Some would say it's a social issue. Some would say it's a political issue. But I think there's, a really big problem that maybe we're not talking about enough. It's this. Many, many people in our country think that Jesus hates them. Many people at least think that Jesus' followers hate them. Let me let me make my case for a moment. The greatest commandment in Scripture is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, Jesus says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. God is described as love all throughout Scripture. The primary characteristic for Christians is to be love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The world will know Christians are Christians by their love. If you don't love one another, you don't love the Father. Just all throughout Scripture, we see this: these, these four letters. Love, 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 love. But that's not what many people have perceived. In a recent Barna Group survey of young adults who are who don't go to church, ninety-one percent of them described Christians as anti-homosexual. It, it wasn't they primarily read their Bibles. They primarily feed the poor. Uh, they uh, or or they even primarily oppose uh, evil and wickedness. It was anti-homosexual, which really troubles me. Because you know what that means? It means that 91% of people who don't go to church think that Christians are anti-people. Not just an issue, but actually against hating a certain group of people. Church, that's a problem. 80% of churchgoers, by the way, describe Christians the same way. Do you see we have a problem? You don't want to know how to add to the problem? It's pretty easy. Our world is really great at this. What you do is you pick an extreme example from the side that you're opposed to. You pick the worst case scenario. I mean, you find the jerk of all jerks. I mean, you find uh, somebody who's really mean-spirited, and you label that person as the norm for the whole group of people. And then then you make statements that are stereotypical blanket statements, and, and you say things like, you know the problem with those Christians? Is there a bunch of Bible-thumping, homophobic, mean-spirited people who only want to oppress us? Or you make statements like, you know the problem with those gays. They're just a bunch of people trying to tear away at the fabric of our nation, and they are trying to drive this extreme political agenda. You want to know how to make this problem worse? Just do that. We're pretty good at it, aren't we? It's why there's so much angst and anger and hate going back and forth. There's never any simple thing, or there, there's, there's never any nuance, there's not even usually a face attached to those kinds of statements. You just make an extreme statement with blunt force. That's how you do it. We have a problem. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this story, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But it beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When unchurched people look at Christians, do they see the first guy or the second guy? According to the Barna Group, too often they're seeing the first guy. Now, to be fair, does the media make this worse? Oh my goodness, yes. They do. The media makes everything worse. It's why we are talking about Usain Bolt for decades. And yet, what was the lead story every night? A bunch of idiot swimmers, you know, vandalized a convenience store and then made a stupid lie about it. Thank you, media. We really wanted to know that. <laughs> every night. And all the, I mean, the media makes all of those things worse. They blow them all up and make a big deal. So, yes, the media has made this issue way worse. Have politicians made it worse? Yeah. They have a pretty good habit for doing that. Have people on the extremes made it worse? You know, the Westboro churches of the world with, you know, a a bombastic preacher who, you know, preaches anger and hate. And there's nothing in the world you can do to stop him from saying those things. And there's nothing in the world you can do to keep the media from always covering that church of a, a few dozen people. That's completely insignificant in the grander scheme there's nothing you can do to stop it, and yet that's the voice of the church. And on the other hand, there's people who would say, that is not the voice for our community, yet that's the only one that's ever heard. So yeah, all of those all of those things can make this worse. But let's not completely let ourselves off the hook, because here's what I know of humanity. I know this. I know that if one person has one healthy, caring, compassion, compassionate relationship with one other person it can completely change that person's entire perspective of not just that person, but that group of people. So it tells me that we don't have enough of those relationships, so we can't just let ourselves off the hook there. So what can we do about it? I think we can all say that we have a lot to talk about, and we can all say we have a problem here. And this morning, if you leave with three words, make them these. Grace, truth, love. Three words, and when it comes to grace, my friend Caleb, I uh, knew a little bit in college, and he and I become better friends the last couple years through some book writing stuff and some preaching stuff, and uh, he's been very kind to me. But he um, he wrote a book, and uh, I just wanted to, you to see just a short snippet of his story because he found out that grace can be very messy.
1: My name is Caleb. If there's one thing I've learned in life, it's that sometimes grace can get messy. Let me tell you what I mean. When I was two, my parents divorced. Then they both came out of the closet. Yep, my mom and dad are gay, both of them. My childhood was messy. I spent most weeks with my dad and he was very quiet about his sexuality. I spent weekends and breaks with my mom and she was not quiet about her sexuality. She met a woman named Vera, and they ended up moving to Kansas City. And it wasn't too long before they were fully immersed in the LGBT community. They joined the local board of directors for GLAAD. They took me with them to parties and campouts and clubs. As a kid, I even marched in gay pride parades. I remember at the end of one of these parades, there were some Christians who were holding up signs on street corners. These signs said things like, Jesus has no room for you. If that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine on everyone. I remember looking at my mom and being confused as a young kid. I asked her, Mom, why are they acting like this? And she said, Well, Caleb, they're Christians. And Christians hate gay people. Growing up, I saw how some Christians treated people in the LGBT community. I watched as people who had AIDS were shunned by their family. I listened as radio preachers spewed homophobia and hate towards the gay community, and I knew that I never wanted the name Christian to be associated with me. Funny enough, when I was in high school I joined a Bible study to learn how to disprove the Bible, and instead I ended up following Jesus. When I graduated from high school I went to Bible college, and after college I worked for several years at a church in Los Angeles before moving to Dallas, Texas to preach. My mother's partner had died a few years earlier, so she moved to Dallas to be closer to our family. My dad moved a few months later. Both my parents started attending the church where I was preaching. Both of my parents gave their lives to the Lord, which is incredible. Do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Are they Christian? Yes. Do they still struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes. Are they judged by some Christian still? Probably. Do they believe the same as me on every theological issue? No. Is God with them on the path they're walking? Yes. How do all these things go together? I don't know. I just know that sometimes grace can get messy. And that's okay, because God loves messy people. I love Caleb, and I
0: love his story. and uh, I want to encourage you, We I actually bought several of his books to put in our library. I would encourage you to check one out and to read it if you are interested at all uh, in pursuing more of his story and what he teaches, which is, which is great. I'll tell you one thing that loving people don't do. Loving people read, uh, don't just go for simplistic answers they actually reject simplistic answers. Um, for, for instance, our building had a faulty alarm issue going on with our alarm system here. And uh, Dave and Linda um, were trying to deal with it. I know they ended up in a meeting uh, with somebody from the alarm company. And uh, and they, they started to work some of this stuff out. But I know exactly what Dave did not want to hear during that meeting with the alarm company person after we're having all these problems and we've done all this troubleshooting on our own. What he did not want to hear was uh, some kind of question like, now are you sure you're entering the right numbers? Are, are you sure all the doors are closed? Are you sure all the VBS kids have left the building since last June? Because... <laughs> Sometimes customer service treats us this way, right? They ask us these really simplistic questions, and it it belittles our intelligence. It insults us. It assumes that we've done no work on our own. And when it comes to this issue, there's some really simplistic questions being asked, and we need to reject them. Think of all the times that Jesus was asked some kind of question that would kind of corner him into a trap. You know, should we pay taxes or not was one of those loaded questions. Jesus refused to answer those simplistic questions because he knew it would hurt people. And ultimately, he knew that they were trying to trap him with a question. And it wasn't just about an issue. This whole thing isn't just about an issue. This whole thing is about people. We're not talking about an issue. We're talking about brothers and sisters and friends and parents Kids, neighbors, we're talking about people, so it has to be personal. Every one of us is impacted personally on some level with this. I'm talking about a college roommate of mine, and I love him, I care for him. Don't make fun of him. I want the best for him in his life. And we're talking about people you know, and you care about. This issue is personal, because we're talking about people. Uh, My friend... Ben, who preaches out in the East Coast uh, area, uh, was asked by somebody, she said, I'm gay. Would I be welcome at that church of yours? And people are asking questions like that. And he gave her a hug and answered in a in a great way. But if people are asking that question sincerely, I just want to speak to the church for a moment. If your gay friends can't come here to find Jesus, where do you suggest they go to find Jesus? Where? If it can't be here, then where? So that means that we have to be the most loving, compassionate, kind-hearted, welcoming people on the face of the planet. Let that be said of us. We don't, we don't turn away people at the doors who come struggling with anything. If that were the case, none of us would be in here today. Because we all come with our stuff. No, we welcome anyone here to find Jesus who then takes us by the hand and leads us down the road to follow him. Our first call is not to fix someone of all of their stuff. We can't fix anybody. Jesus is in that kind of work. What we do is we love people and care for people and teach people and pray for people and let God do a work inside of them. There are a lot of people that are really angry about this issue. I mean, that's why any time it comes up, if you say, target bathrooms, everybody goes ballistic. They get angry for one reason or another. I mean, just turn on everybody's angry. And I just want to ask you another question. Is your anger over difference with others more powerful than your compassion for their souls? Because from the outside, if you were to ever step out and just look, it seems like it is that way for lots of people. And I want to call the church back to having compassion for people's souls first. I would pray that in five years if the Barna Group does another survey with non-Christian people, they would get some answers, something like, yeah, those Christians, uh, I don't agree with everything that they believe, but man, they sure do love me. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for a non-Christian person to say that would then open up conversations? Grace, truth, and love. Let's talk about grace and truth for a moment. And to do so, I want to read from John chapter 8. And I want to begin in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and sin no more. The whole thing was a trap. It really wasn't about the woman or her sin. It was all, it was all orchestrated to try to trap Jesus in some way. Notice, they, they did not bring the man. I don't think they caught her in adultery only with herself. They caught her with a man, but they didn't bring the man. They didn't care about that. They didn't really care about justice. They cared about trapping Jesus. And this woman was their pawn. So they drag her and throw her before Jesus, rocks in their hands, ready to, ready to stone her, but they want to put Jesus on the spot. Do you approve of this sin, Jesus, or will you join us in killing her? Simplistic question, right? Just a simple yes or no answer is all we need. And what does Jesus do? Refuses to answer, kneels down, he starts writing in the dust. We don't know what he wrote. There's some traditions that say he began to write people's names who were standing there. Other traditions suggest that he was writing just a list of sins that maybe the other people had committed. Some people think his writing might have reminded them of Jeremiah 17, which says, Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they will have forsaken the Lord. We're not sure, but... When he begins to write, then he says, now, now, which one here? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, who's without sin? It's real quiet. Nobody? Well, wh- whoever's without sin can throw the first stone. The old guys realize it first. And then the young guys realize it too. Their trap has fallen apart. They drop the rocks to the ground and they walk away. And then Jesus who, by the way, is the only one who could have deserved to have thrown a rock, obviously isn't going to. And he gives grace to the woman. and For the first time maybe in her entire life, that woman experienced grace. You know how many people in this world have never experienced a moment of real grace? They've never had one in their life. We live in a world that needs to experience a moment of Jesus' beautiful grace. And Jesus offers her grace, forgiveness, payment for sins, pardon. But notice also what Jesus never does. He never excuses her sin. He never says, ah, it's no big deal. Forget about it. Jesus never excuses her sin. To excuse her sin would be to belittle what he would do on the cross. So don't ever excuse your sins, my friends. That's the truth part of this. That we can't excuse our sins. Our sins caused Jesus to need to die for us. To, to go through the agony of the crucifixion. That's what our sins caused. That Jesus would have to say yes to that kind of pain. So never excuse your own sins. Don't just try to write them off and think it's no big deal. They are a big deal. Because the cross is a big deal. Jesus doesn't excuse sins but he offers a way out of punishment he offers grace and then he says to her now go and sin no more Jesus offers grace and truth both things together you see if you have truth without grace it's just judgmental mean-spirited morality obsessed bullying that's all it is and by the way when you try to do truth before grace people never stick around to hear the grace Because it comes off too mean-spirited. Might I suggest that in your life, under most situations and most circumstances, the correct order of things is grace first and then truth. I just think that's a good principle. Grace first and then truth. Maybe there's some exceptions to that rule out there somewhere. But I, I see that here in this story. Grace and then truth. So we can't have truth without grace. But we also can't have grace without truth because grace without truth is an unthoughtful, fantasy land, lazy, appeasing play for you to be liked by people more than God. So you can't leave truth aside either. I preached a sermon before here where we kind of dug deep into just the question of what, what does God say about uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, and we unpacked kind of the seven key verses in the Bible and then some arguments from people on, on different sides and kind of dug into the... And we're not going to go there today. We don't have time to jump back in to that one today. But let me just say this. Anybody watched the gymnastics this past week, cheering for Simone and Ali and Gabby and all of them, we cheered for them. When, when I watch the the gymnast, there are sometimes I watch them and I'm, and I'm thinking, that's not normal. Like the body is not... Like, my body can't do that. And if my body did that, it would mean that I was dead. And I'd been broken into pieces, snapped in half, never to walk again. And you're just like, that's unusual. That's crazy how they can do that. And there's some people who have taken Scripture. And when I look at what they've done with Scripture, I think, that's that's unusual. That's not normal. And those would be the people who have taken Scripture and said, God affirms Same-sex marriage. You just can't do it well because Scripture doesn't teach that. And God speaks pretty clearly in the first two chapters of Genesis. God says, here's what marriage is to be. One man leaves his father and mother. One woman leaves her mom and dad. And the two shall become one flesh. And throughout scripture, we see the same pattern affirmed. Uh, we see God use this as a grand illustration for his love and care for us. There's wedding talk all throughout the Bible that kind of begins to fall apart when you do anything other than how God showed us to do it. And God in the Old Testament affirms this. Jesus affirms this. And while Jesus is never asked about uh, the gay issue, probably for the biggest reasons, because the Jews had, would speak pretty strongly about that without him needing to say anything. But when Jesus asked about marriage, you know what he does? He says, you want to know about marriage? Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. He affirms Scripture. The New Testament writers affirm this, and never, in, is there any place in Scripture that gives any wiggle room for God's plan, not only for marriage, but for sexual relations. Just one. In the confines, the protection, the safety of a marriage between one man and one woman. That's it. That's all. And God sets up these boundaries. And when I used to teach high schoolers about this, a lot, I would always bring out a kite. And some of those people who are not high schoolers anymore know what I'm talking about. But uh, it's kind of like there could be a kite that could rebel against the string. And the kite could say, I hate the string. It's so restrictive. It keeps me from really flying and being who I want to be. But the truth is, without the restriction of the string, the kite just crashes to the ground. And without the restriction of God's sexual ethic, what we see is relationships and societies that crash to the ground. We see them in scripture. Yes, scripture tells us many people who got way outside of God's sexual ethic and of God's ideal for marriage. The Bible tells us history and the true stories, and they end with crashes And in our own world, we look around and we see many things that end with crashes when we get outside of God's plan. In my own office, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to individuals or couples who got way outside God's ethic and their lives and relationship were headed towards a crash if they did not do something to get back to where God wanted them to be. If you're someone who feels same-sex attraction, you're here today you might be thinking, "Well, Brian, you are asking an awful lot of me," and I hear you. I am. I, I want you to know that I understand what we're asking it feels really difficult. If it helps you at all, God is asking a lot of all of us. He He asks us to submit our lives fully to Him. There was a guy named King David, who one day was on a rooftop. He was strolling around, and he looks off the edge of the roof. And he sees a woman bathing. She's beautiful. In that moment, unless he knew she was going to be there, which we don't have any indication that he did, there was no sin involved. But there was a temptation that came real quick. And the temptation was indulge in this look and turn it into a lust. And then indulge in that lust and turn it into adultery. And then indulge in the adultery and turn it into a big cover-up. Again, we saw with the swimmers that sometimes the lie is worse than the cover-up. Thank you, swimmers, for illustrating that lesson to our kids. But David indulges in all of this, and the sin becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And in that moment in his life, which thankfully for David was not the norm for his whole life, but in that season, a fairly long season of his life, you could say that David had an orientation towards heterosexual immorality towards adultery, towards any woman he saw and thought was attractive. He had an orientation to sleep with them. And so he replaced his orientation, his direction, his commitment to God with this other orientation to follow his desires. Christ calls us to be oriented to him first. And every other orientation falls below that and has to fall in line with our primary orientation to Christ. Galatians 2:20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ now lives in me that's Christian orientation it means that the Christian wife must deny any orientation to flirt with the handsome co-employee. It means that the Christian man must deny any orientation to look at pornography on the internet. It means that the Christian dating couple must deny any orientation to sleep together before marriage. It means that the Christian high schooler must deny any orientation to hook up after prom, even though everyone else is doing it. It means that the Christian parent and grandparent would reject any orientation that says, I'm just going to point my fingers and blame them instead of get down and work with young people and love them and care for them and mentor them in the sexual ethic that God has in store for them, it means we refuse any orientation that moves us apart from God's will for our lives. Jackie Hill Perry grew up in a really difficult home, and uh, she's got a a long story, but she uh, ended up uh, chasing some homosexual fantasies and relationships, but she found Jesus and she found the hope of Christ and gave her life to Jesus and as part of that journey she came to the realization that she needed to move away from how she had been living sexually and so she did and she prayed that God would uh, bring her into a relationship and a marriage with a godly man and she would be attracted to him and they could have a family and it, not like any of it happened quickly but God did. And today, um, Jackie and her husband could show you their baby that just a year too two old. God did something pretty marvelous in her life. Another guy named Henry Nguyen. Some of you have read his books. I have some of his books on my shelves. Some of the best Christian devotional writing you'll ever read. He had a lifelong struggle with same-sex attraction. But he recognized what Scripture said. And so he chose celibacy for a lifetime. And he struggled with that. And God never removed that temptation, as far as we know, from him. So life oftentimes was a struggle. But he was oriented towards Christ more than any orientation for himself. There's few people I have more respect for than people like Henry, people like Jackie, who said, I orient, orient myself to Christ above anything Two different people, two different situations. God responded to them in two different ways. And yet they found the grace of Christ to be sufficient for them. There's a tension that you're going to feel sometimes. It's this tension between grace and truth. And you're like, Ugh, I'm not sure what to do. That tension has a name. It's called love. Caleb writes in his book that love is the tension between grace And truth. And when Caleb became a Christian, his parents were not happy with that decision at all. And they, they tried to talk him out of that as much as they could and rejected his decision to do that. But as Caleb walked in that tension, he still chose to follow Christ. When he said he was going to become a preacher, I mean, they wanted to disown him. They were so angry with him. And so Caleb, again, is walking in this tension of, love mom and dad, but I love God and I follow his plan for me and how do I make this all work? And it gets real messy, feeling this tension. When Caleb preached at a real small little church in college, his mom visited one time. And afterwards, some leaders of that little church pulled him aside and they said, Caleb, don't you ever bring someone like that back to our church again wrestling in that tension, Caleb said, well, this was my last Sunday. It's messy. It's messy to love people and to love God and know how all that works together. It'll feel like tension, but I want to encourage you not to run away from that tension. I have a friend who talked to me a couple months ago, and she's had an opportunity uh, with her business uh, to go and uh, work at an event here in Tulsa hosted by an LGBT group, and she knew that there would be aspects of that event that would not honor God, and yet also that event would be full of people who don't know the Lord. And she asked some people for advice about what she should do as a young Christian lady. And she was told some simplistic answers by a few people. Oh, you should definitely do this, or you should definitely do this, or it's terrible to do this, or terrible to do this. And she asked me, and she was really struggling, and I told her, Um, I said, I'm so proud of you for feeling this tension. I'm so thankful that you feel this tension because what that tells me is that you love these people and you love the Lord and you're struggling with this whole grace truth thing. You're you're trying to figure out how do you walk as Jesus would have you walk. And so I I said, you know, I, I I can't answer for you. I can't tell you what to do. I can tell you that Jesus got accused an awful lot of times of being in places with sinners. And I said, but I know you're not Jesus and you may not be that strong in this moment. And you've got other things to consider. No situation is exactly the same. So I just listed a bunch of questions that she ought to ask before she made her decision. And she did. And she continues to have a witness to a group of people uh, who need to know the Lord and who need to know God's grace. But that's not easy. It's messy because our lives are messy. It's difficult navigating this world. And if we get to the simplistic, easy answers and there's no tension in our world at all, I'm wondering if we're really loving God and loving people like he's called us to. If you know people, and I'm sure you do, with different beliefs than you, I want to just offer you some counsel that hopefully can be just super practical. When someone asks you something like, what do you think about gay marriage? Wouldn't Jesus consider that a trap question? (laughs) If, if somebody asks you just a question like that, I want to encourage you to ask one question back to them. And here's the one question. Well, what do you think of Jesus? Because if the, if the person says, Well, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. I was baptized five years ago. And I go to Bible study every day. And then you could say, well, that's great. I'm so glad that you follow Jesus. And so, can we sit down together and look at what does Scripture say? And what did Jesus affirm in Scripture? And, and, and what does the Bible teach us about this? And we can have a Bible study and a great discussion about your question. And then you can do that. But if the person says, well, Jesus is really nothing to me. Or, Jesus is a cool guy, but he's not God's son or Jesus is okay, but I don't really trust anything about the Bible or anything about Christians. If if they say something like that, then you can say, well, I'm glad to talk with you, but we have completely different worldviews here. I'm not sure how far this conversation can go and be healthy, because the truth is that I believe that God created you, and he created me, and he created a design for us to follow, and we're all messed up, and You've sinned and I've sinned, and the only way that we come to grace is through Jesus' sacrifice. And so we need that. But I, I believe that the Bible is God's word to us, and I try to follow Scripture as best I can, and I want to love you in the process. And we can talk if you want, but we're kind of coming from two old different worldviews. If we said that, would the next saying, would, would, would we be yelling at each other? I just don't think we would. But I, I don't think we ever ask the most important question. And the truth is that God has not called you to convince everyone that gay marriage is bad or that they need to not be gay anymore. That's not your primary responsibility in this world to non-Christians. Your primary responsibility to non-Christians is to go and make disciples, to welcome people with grace. And then the teaching comes after. And then you walk with people as they work out their salvation, as Philippians 2 says, as they try to figure out how is God going to lead me In all of this, that's what God's called us to do. And then we take people by the hand, put our arm around their shoulder, we walk with them through their messy life, and we figure out how can we honor God from our current situation? What does that mean to go forward for us? It must have been an amazing moment when all of the women's accusers left from the John 8 account. She was left there alone. I like that, with Jesus. Everybody else had scattered and she's there, and Jesus says, Hey, where did they go? Is there anybody left? Any accusation still standing, charged against you? And she says, I imagine I still on the ground. No, sir. And Jesus says, Then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I accuse you. Maybe for the first time, she looked up. Maybe her eyes were lifted by the hope of grace, by the hope of love. If you sit here today... And you are one who struggles with same-sex attraction. I want to thank you for coming today. I know it must have been tough. And I'm, I'm thankful that you came and you listened. And if you hear anything today, I pray you know that God loves you and he cares for you. And he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And we love you too. And we want to care for you and help you on your walk. And we want you to know Jesus as well. If you're here today and you've been wounded by the church, I want to say we're sorry. We have our baggage too, and we need grace too. If you're someone who's been harsh with people today, you need to ask God for forgiveness, and maybe you need to go to them and ask them for forgiveness too. If you are here and you are living outside of God's sexual ethic, outside of his boundary, and that could be for a multitude of, of different reasons. Uh, I hope that you know that Jesus extends grace. What I found when I've talked to many people is that when they've lived in guilt for so long, sometimes they can't find their way out of it. They can't find like a path that's healthy and good for them. And sometimes to re- be reminded that Jesus keeps offering grace and love and care for us, sometimes just hearing that will take this burden off And then suddenly, maybe together uh, with some godly counsel, they'll say, oh, well, here's what we can do in our life to align ourselves to God's boundaries, to his sexual ethic, to his plan for marriage. Here's what we can do. We can take this next step. And I am so proud of those who have taken difficult, uncomfortable, unpopular steps to align their lives under God's boundaries. And they've been a witness to their friends and their families. But it's been difficult. And you might need some help. We would love to walk with you in that. And for anybody who needs to know Jesus, you need to know that Jesus kneels beside you. And he says, I- I don't, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you and to offer you grace. And I pray that the ways of love and grace would sweep over you today. There's a step for you to make. And it may start here this morning. During the next song, if you would like to come up and receive prayer, we'll have some folks on the front row who would love to just pray with you, visit with you quietly up here. If you would like to talk to somebody further, I've actually asked a few people who have wrestled personally with this issue, uh, who honor God with their lives and lead in different ways at the church. Uh, I've asked them to be available uh, to speak to you today and Um, I would just ask that you would find me after the service today down in Connecting Point and I would like to connect you maybe with somebody to visit with you, talk to you, listen to you, pray with you. We would love to stand with you and walk through you, uh, walk with you through this journey. Would you stand and and let me pray for us? God, we, we come broken in all sorts of ways and we just need to soak it up that you love us and that you care for us. And sometimes we've gotten way out of control in being so angry about something that we forgot to love people and we're sorry. Help us to love people like you love people. And God, sometimes in our own lives, we've gotten way out of line. And there's excuses and there's reasons and there's all of that, but we know it. And God, I pray today for confession and repentance, and that it would be cloaked not in guilt, but in grace and truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen.